Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, band. Good morning, guys. Glad that you guys are here this uh, Sunday morning. Hopefully you're feeling fresh. Uh, Today I want to talk about something that's kind of like a basic move in Christianity. Uh, You know how in like sports, now watch out, Wade did it last week, I'm going with a sports analogy, all right? Trying it out, it seemed to work out for him, I'm going to give it a shot. No, it doesn't come as natural from me as it does from Wade, but we're going to go there, okay? Uh, See, there's like basic moves, as I understand, in sporting, right? Um, They're not like advanced in and of themselves, except for they're sort of like a gateway to other advanced moves. And I actually used to coach nine-year-old soccer, um, and even like the worst kid on the team, William, it was his name, uh, we'll say, hypothetically, sure, Uh, he could kick the ball, right? Like he could just come up and whack it. Wouldn't always go where it wanted to go. Uh, wouldn't always like be as strong as he wanted it to be, but he could do it. Uh, he could like uh, dribble a little bit, but it wouldn't like necessarily like he couldn't keep it in front of his feet. You know, and get away from him a little bit, or he'd trip over it or something like that. But he could basically do it. William was like this cute little kid. He's two feet tall. His shin guards went like up to his knees. He still had that like weird toddler proportions where like your head is extra big, kind of looked like a lollipop, right? So he was like struggling, you know what I mean? You guys have seen this, right? He was at nine. He should have begun like kind of growing out of that a little bit. He kicked with like the wrong side of his foot. You know, he was like just always kind of like stumbling, but more or less he could like do, you know, the most rudimentary things that like would loosely qualify as soccer, I guess. Then one day, um, we taught a new move. This move was less intuitive than kicking, right? We all know how to kick. But this move was a little bit less intuitive. It was called a step over. And basically, like, you would step over the ball. So it looks like when people see your foot, especially when you're nine years old, it looks like you're going to kick the ball, but you're not. And then you'd come and cut back with the other foot and go the opposite direction. Basic move to try and, like, shake a defender. From there, you start learning other moves, and you can learn, like, really cool tricks. You learn how to, like, sell it a little bit more and stuff like that. Uh, It was the gateway for millions of tricks and moves that you could use to shake a defender. So I teach the move. Uh, Then I tell the kids to line up and give it a shot, and I'm, like, walking down the line like General Patton, you know? I literally uh, coach with a clipboard all the time, clipboard, whistle, the whole nine yards. I'm walking down the line, and I'm like, oh, Billy, nice, nice, good step over. I'm like, oh, Johnny, make sure you're catching the outside of that left foot as you're doing it, you know? Um, You know, like, oh, uh, Brandon, you're doing a great job over here. I like it, right? And then I come up to William. Dude is on the ground somehow, which if you know anything about a step over is not necessarily a part of this move, right? That's not how you should end up. And he's like, coach, coach, every time I do it, I end up on the ground. And I'm like, well, I don't think you're doing it right. He's somehow like trying to use both feet to step over and kick at the same time. Like he really cannot possibly wrap his mind around this move and keep both of his feet on the ground and just... It did not work. He ended up like uh, looking like a cartoon character, you know, like how they kind of like they'll run a lot in the air and then they'll like sprint off. That was him. He was like getting two moves in the air and then flat on his back every single time. And the craziest thing about that story is that he grew up to be Christian Pulisic and play on the national team. No, I'm just kidding. The sad part is his dad was the assistant coach and he was like this Eastern European guy that was really great at soccer, much better than me. William was a serious disappointment. So the lesson today is don't be... William and 
band if you guys want to come back up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, I say all of that to say uh, that today's move, actually, in Christianity, it's like a Christian move is kind of similar. And I know that's a cheesy way to talk about it, but it's the only way that I could really think about it. This is kind of like a gateway move to everything else. This is the beginning. What I mean is like when you become a Christian at first, or even if you've been one for a few years, it's easy to think about being a Christian as just sort of like, I want to be a little bit nicer than the next guy. You know, there's not much to it to think about it. Like, especially when you first get into it, you're like, oh man, I was doing that one really bad thing. And so I'm going to stop doing that bad thing. Like I was like lying a lot, or I was like stealing stuff, or I was like, you know, hooked on drugs or something like that. And then you say, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm going to stop doing that. All right. That's kind of the rudimentary things, right? That's kind of like kicking a ball in soccer. When you first become a Christian, you're like, this is the obvious thing to do. I need to change this about my life. Very often, even coming to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit actually works in that moment to relieve you of whatever that thing is that you are hooked on. But that is kind of the basics. And if you know the gospel that Jesus sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, and if you believe in him and ask his forgiveness, you can enjoy eternal life with God forever. Right? And then you know that the Bible prescribes a certain way of living that is sometimes challenging but is ultimately beautiful, and that's how we're meant to live in the first place. Like all of that is the rudimentary basics of Christianity. This is how a new Christian stops like cheating on his wife or getting drunk every night or hating their boss or whatever. In the midst of saving our souls, God saves us from those things too, okay? So we're all on the same page. Those are the basics. This then becomes something like a next step. And I don't mean that to say that like Christianity is some ladder. It's just sort of like the way that it very often works. And it's a little bit different. This is why it's like compared to the step over move. It's a little bit sort of like less intuitive than just the be a nice person kind of Christianity we very often start off with. And this move also, if you can learn it, if you can truly like embed it deeply in your bones, can help you become the Christian that you've always wanted to be because it's sort of like the beginning of a different way of thinking about yourself that can radically change the way that you understand following Jesus. The move is simply this. You must forgive much because you have been forgiven more. You must forgive much because you have been forgiven more. It's a relatively simple idea, but it's truly hard to actually grasp and actually apply all of the possible applications to this to your life. So let's take a look at the text again. We're going to walk through it kind of slowly. This is verse 21. Then Peter came up to him, or came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, uh, this is Peter coming up to Jesus. Jesus is the him in that sentence. And you see how Peter here, he very often is like the unchosen representative of all the disciples. Like I picture them all standing around a group of 12 and they're like, no, you ask him, you ask him, you ask him. And Peter's like, I'll do it. What's the worst that could happen, right? And he marches up there. And I think in this moment, actually, he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's like, how many times should I forgive somebody? As many as seven times. That's a lot, right? Jesus is going to be like, oh, geez, Peter, you want to forgive somebody seven times? That's too many. You're too good of a person, right? Like, that's what Peter's thinking in his mind. Actually, the Pharisees of this day, so remember, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They had serious rules. They were, like, putting rules on top of the Bible already. They said, you should forgive somebody as many as three times. So Peter's marching up here, and he's saying, I'm going more than twice as many as the Pharisees. Jesus is going to be so proud of me. I'm going to give him this softball question. He's going to pat me on the head, and everything's going to be great. Now, this is not uh, what actually happens. 
I also want you to notice before we move on a little bit further, because uh, we're going to be talking about forgiveness today, I want you to notice something, because I want to be honest to the text. Peter actually says, if my brother uh, sins against me, which is typically a word that the, the church, using family language, would use to refer to each other. So like, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus and a part of the church, then you are one of the brothers and sisters. Uh, and if you are on the outside, uh, then you're not. So basically what Peter is asking here is, what if somebody else, a follower of Jesus, comes up and sins against me? Now I'm saying that to say just so that nobody gets sort of like caught up. I'm going to be talking about forgiveness more broadly today. I think the most specific application of this very question that Peter asks is about the brothers, uh, so those who are inside the church. But I think combining this with the rest of Scripture and especially seeing the way that Jesus talks about forgiveness, I think it could probably be applied even more broadly. Like in the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus tells us that we should ask God uh, to forgive us as we forgive others. And in there, there is no sort of caveat of like in the church, outside the church, anything like that. So I think that this advice, or really this like Christian move, advice is probably too small a word, but you know what I mean, is actually for us to use as the way that we think about forgiving others all around the world, anyone that we interact with. Jesus even shows us how to do this as he forgives the like people who are actively murdering him while he is on the cross. He asks that they would be forgiven by God, right? He doesn't really like give us a lot of outs when it's like trying to determine who we should forgive and who we shouldn't forgive, right? In fact, <clears throat> even here, I think we really want Jesus to respond with some sort of clarifying cl question because that makes it easier for us, right? We want Jesus to be like, um, well, Peter, actually, that depends how many times you should forgive him. Is this a toxic person? Because that's going to be less, right? That's going to knock their number down. Is this person racist? Because then you got to bring the number way down. We don't forgive racists around here, you know? Like, we want all those kind of things, and Jesus doesn't actually give it to us. Like, do you notice how in, like, our flesh, even, like, the beginning of this conversation about forgiveness, we're like, man, I really want some sort of, like, qualifications. I want to put as many labels on this as I possibly can, and that doesn't actually happen. Jesus is delightfully unaccommodating to our wishes here in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And that is a lot of times. I've done a lot of research on the ancient Near East. That was a lot back then. It is also a lot now, right? 77 times. In fact, some translations read 70 times 7, right? Either way, whatever it is, that's a lot. A lot more than I want to forgive someone. Yet this is what Jesus calls us to do. To be basically an infinitely forgiving person. It would be helpful at this moment, <clears throat> right now, actually like think of someone who has wronged you could be on the ride in this morning somebody cut you off in traffic could be uh you know somebody at your home who jumped in the bathroom before you could uh it could be something a whole lot bigger than any of that and in fact most of our minds are probably going to this thing that maybe we've been carrying around for a little bit too long there's a real temptation when we start talking about this to be like yeah those other people should probably be really forgiving Right? Like, it's really tempting to be like, I know somebody who needs to hear this message. And usually when that happens, it, it's probably us, right? Like, that's the nature of following Jesus. So think about that. Just take a brief moment. Someone who has wronged you, someone that you would have a lot of difficulty forgiving 77 times. That's probably what Peter was doing in this moment. I don't think this just came out of nowhere. 
One of the other disciples definitely used his coffee mug, right? Even though it had his name on it. And they went into the, the office or whatever and was like, oh, no, what happened? So then he comes to Jesus. He's like, please tell me this has happened eight times already because I am about to fight this guy. Tell me I only have to forgive him seven and Jesus does not give him this out. I don't know what it was. Peter was definitely or most likely thinking of some sort of situation here, I would imagine. So let's do the same. And then this is how Jesus responds to him with a story. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and a payment to be made. Now, I want you to recognize that 10,000 talents would have been a whole lot of money, like an absurd amount, like a truly unreasonable, a crazy amount. We actually don't know the exact measurement of a talent because it kind of fluctuated around the ancient Near East, and it's kind of difficult to say now. Uh, Josephus, somebody else who was writing at the time, a historian, uh, said that all the taxes taken to Herod, or that Herod took from the people to be paid to Caesar, every year would have amounted to around 200 talents. Okay, remember, we're talking about 10,000 here. So all the taxes of one entire region wouldn't have amounted to this amount. In fact, other scholars have said that this amount may have been more than the entire amount of coinage that was like in circulation in Egypt at this time. Like that's how much money we're talking about here. Just truly an absurd amount. Jesus is painting a crazy absurd picture. This was millions and millions, maybe even billions of dollars in today's uh, like concept of money. Some people have suggested that the reason why this guy owed this much money is maybe he was like a tax collector that was over a bunch of other tax collectors. Tax collecting was basically like one big pyramid scheme that paid up to the rulers back then. And so maybe he took out a contract and said, I'm going to collect this many taxes. He goes out, something happens, something really drastic would have happened because it sounds like he's coming back with nothing and he owed an absurd amount. And so now he and his family, his wife and his children and everything that they had were about to be sold so that they could be sold into slavery. And this was like a just practice back then. Clearly it was not kind, uh, clearly it was not good or healthy, but under the rules of the law, this would have been legally and culturally acceptable back then for his entire family and everything he had to be sold to pay for this debt. And even that would not have scratched the surface of how much he owed. Verse 26, this is how the servant responds. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, can you imagine the release here? the freedom that this guy must have felt. I mean, imagine right now, like if all of your debts were paid off, wouldn't that be nice? And hopefully you guys aren't billions in the hole like this guy, right? Like this is truly, truly, truly more money than we could ever imagine and complete and total forgiveness of all of that. Like, can you just, just for a moment, wrap your mind around like one moment you're standing here and you're like, my precious children are about to be sold into slavery for their entire lives because of my stupid mistake. And then the very next moment, you have absolutely no debts whatsoever. You don't owe a single penny. So what does he do? <clears throat> Verse 28. 
When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now a denarii, we know, was actually about a day's wage. And a hundred of them would have been one six hundred thousandth of the ten thousand talents. That's such a big gap that I can't even pronounce it correctly, right? Like, this is just an absurd gap. It would be like if you went and, like, won the lottery. Like, you won the lottery, and you go and you pick up your winnings that day, and you're like, wow, I'm really rich now. And your buddy comes to you, and he's like, man, congrats on winning the lottery. And he's like, and you're like, you never paid me for that coffee last week. Like, do you realize how absurd that would be? And you're like, yeah, man, you owe me three bucks. We went to go get coffee together. This is crazy. And he's like, you just won $10 million. It's absurd. A hundred denarii would have paled in comparison to this huge debt. In fact, even if he had gotten that hundred denarii, it would have gotten him so, like, infinitesimally closer to paying off that debt. Like, it's a negligible amount when we're talking about 10,000 talents. It's absurd. And yet, this is how he reacted. Naturally, the people around him would not like this. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had happened, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, and you pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy on your, or, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You see what I'm saying? The audacity of this guy to not forgive this other person is truly, truly, truly astounding. It's disgusting, right? I mean, this is the villain in the story. That he would be given so much forgiveness and then treat his fellow servant with such uncaring unkindness. And then Jesus, as he often does, turns the light on us. He said, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't think this is necessarily as much of a threat as it sounds like. This would be yet just another sin that would require the forgiveness of Jesus. You see this all throughout the Gospels that Jesus is like painting a very strong picture of the consequences of sin. He wants you to know what the cross actually costs him. Like this is the weight that he is carrying to the cross, all of our sins. And I think he wants to know the true weight and depth of our sinfulness so that we know our need for him in the Gospel. But at the same time, it is a warning to us. That again, we must forgive much because we have been forgiven more. Should we do our sums now? Like, should we actually like count up the cost? Would that be helpful? People say to count up our blessings. I'm not sure that that's as, help, as helpful a practice to actually say that we should count up our sins. We should tally them. We should know them. We should one day like actually count up the cost and see how much it actually is. Like if each sin, every time that we were like against the will of God for our lives, anytime we were acting out of selfishness and pride and greed and out of self-interest, every time we were harmful to ourselves and to our fellow man, how much would the amount be like if each sin were a dollar what would it be what do you think that number would be in your life 
And if you're sitting there thinking it's probably less than the guy sitting next to me, then go ahead and add another dollar into that, right? Like you're probably prideful right now. Think about just how many it would be. Man, I'd probably owe a few bucks for today and all I did was wake up and come here. Would it be in the thousands? Would it be in the hundreds of thousands? Would it be the millions or hundreds of millions? Whatever it would be, I imagine it would be a sum that we couldn't earn in a million years if we tried. It would be like the servant that owes 10,000 talents. That is the great cost of our sin. And Jesus chose to forgive all of that debt. He chose to pay it himself. He paid for it with blood and with pain and with nails and thorns and splinters. He paid for it in agony. So what right do we have, knowing that, to begrudge somebody else of a paltry sum against us? What right do we have, knowing the great cost of our sin that Jesus took on himself, to look at somebody else and say, now you owe me? It's absurd, and yet we do it every single day. You don't even have to be throwing people in prison for this to be the case. Sometimes we kind of imprison people in our minds because of the wrongs that they've done against us. Your punishment doesn't even have to be outwards to them. Sometimes we just refuse forgiveness for people. Think about that wrong that's been done to you. How long have you been carrying it out? How long have you been carrying it in your heart? <clears throat> You may argue here that the math simply doesn't add up. You're like, hold on a second. Uh, Jesus gave me a lot. Why does that mean that I need to give something else to someone, right? What does the amount that I owe God have to do with the amount of wrong that a person did to me? Well, if that is the case, think about this. The forgiveness isn't about them. The forgiveness is about you. Do you see that in this story? Who's the main character in here? It's not the king, the 10,000 talents that's owed to him. It's also not the servant that owes 100 denarii. It's that guy in the middle. He's the main character. He is the person that's the go-between between those two positions, and this is how we are also positioned, always positioned in between these two parties, between someone who has done us wrong and a God who has done us more right than we could ever deserve. That's where we live, right? In the midst of being forgiven of so very much from a God who doesn't owe us anything and having people who sin against us who we feel like they owe us. Which means that we're always in the middle of needing to understand the goodness of God and needing to forgive someone who has wronged us. The rest of your life, you don't grow out of this phase. In fact, the beauty of this thing is there is no way that you could become righteous enough, spiritual enough, holy enough to where you wouldn't need to do this anymore. Someone is always going to wrong you. Even if you could somehow magically become a perfect person, fully sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit, walking around blessing every single person you meet, you would still be wronged and you would still have the need to forgive someone. We don't grow out of this. We don't get past it. This must be our pattern of living if we are to call ourselves followers of Jesus. 
The reason why I call this a gateway move too is because it changes every single thing about you, every single thing that you think. No longer can you think of yourself as like a really powerful and amazing person because ultimately you're a person who has had a huge debt forgiven that you could have never paid off. Do you know what that does to your like pride? It's impossible to be a prideful and arrogant person walking around being like, look at everything I've accomplished when really you are just a person who has been forgiven an absurd amount. changes the way that you think about your relationships to other people. Now no longer are you a better person than they are. You're just two people who desperately need the forgiveness of a God who can give us more forgiveness than we could possibly imagine. Now all of a sudden that person that wronged you is not the bad person and you're the good person. No, you're both people in need of forgiveness and you have the opportunity and the responsibility to extend just a taste and a glimpse of the forgiveness of God to this other person. Forgiveness for the follower of Jesus ought to be like breathing. Every time that you breathe, you inhale oxygen that fills up our lungs and then gets disseminated through the rest of our body. And then we exhale carbon dioxide. It's like a waste gas that we just push off into the air. We breathe in life and we breathe out death every single time that you take a breath. Similarly, we as followers of Jesus must inhale the kindness and mercy of God as we exhale the forgiveness for those around us. This ought to be the move. In fact, you could even use this as a practice when you're like getting worked up, right? And this is easy to do because you can do it when you're dealing with someone who has hurt you in this harmful and irrevocable way. And you can do it when someone pulls in front of you in traffic and there we go, cuts you off like that. That was a real example of like what it feels like, right? I forgive you, tech team. I'm just kidding, it's not your fault. Uh, I don't know what's going on. Anyway, <clears throat> here's what we need to do. And this is an easy practice. Breathe in the goodness of God. Remember his mercy. Remember his forgiveness of your own sin. And then breathe out forgiveness and mercy over those who have sinned against you. Let's actually try it right now. It's going to get weird. I'm sorry. Uh, everybody right now, I can watch your breathing, so don't do that thing where you're like, he won't see me. I'm not going to do this, right? It's a smaller room than you think, people. All right, everyone, inhale the goodness and mercy of God. Think of the forgiveness he's given you, and exhale forgiveness for those who have sinned against you. Forgiveness and mercy over all you meet. Let's try it again. Inhale the goodness of God. And exhale the forgiveness for those who desperately need it. Now, I hope I didn't just trick you with some sort of like, you know, breath exercise that probably made you feel good just because of some sort of heart rate thing. I don't know. I'm sure there's a book about it. But doesn't that feel kind of nice? Here's what I want you to do. I want you on the exhale to actually think about that person that you need to forgive. Think about that person that you've been chewing on and that wrong that's been done to you. Think about it right now as we inhale the goodness of God and exhale forgiveness for someone who desperately needs it. That is the move that I want us to join in today. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. <clears throat> Band, you guys can come on back up. We're going to transition into a time of response. And every time we respond here at Dwell Church, we actually take communion every single Sunday. 
This is an excellent opportunity, and in fact, this is probably something we need to integrate into our practice, that as we are taking communion, we are actually tasting weekly the forgiveness of God. We are actually ingesting it into our body as we celebrate the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. This is all the cost that it cost Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And each and every single week here at Dwell, we actually take that into ourselves. Should not the fuel that that brings to our body be forgiveness for those around us? Should not that that we inhale, that we ingest actually in this moment, translate into energy by which we might go out and forgive those who have sinned against us? So join me as we take communion today, celebrating that forgiveness. We're going to respond in two other ways as well. Uh, the first one is uh, you can come and pray with someone right over here in the dining room. If you need prayer for anything, if you found yourself being like, man, it's easy to inhale, but I cannot exhale this forgiveness. If you found that you have someone that you are just carrying on as a difficult forgiveness, come pray with someone who wants to pray with you, who wants to see you released from that difficult thing that you're carrying around. And seek the God of the universe and the God of our forgiveness that he might forgive or allow you to forgive the person that you are withholding that forgiveness from. And finally, uh, you can spend this time processing, praying with God. You need to really just take a moment, as I am going to do, to check our hearts to see what forgiveness we are withholding right now. And when you're ready, you can stand and sing. Let me pray for you. <clears throat> Dear God, we thank you. God, for your forgiveness for us. God, we'll never be able to fully understand it. We can't appreciate it to its great height and depth. God, we'll never even know the great cost of our sin that you carried to the cross, God, but we thank you for it. God, we want to know that. We want to count it so that we can rejoice in the forgiveness that you have given us, God. And may you send us out now as people who forgive, people who have been forgiven so very much so that we might forgive so much, God. Take our small and humble offerings of forgiveness to those around us, God, as a gift and a response to you. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time is yours. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.